Welcome to the brand new Scottish Indie Music Podcast with Finlay MacDonald and me, Gareth Perry. Every couple of weeks or so, we'll be having a chat about the musical worlds we grew up in, our personal experience as musicians, as well as the music that we love. We'll be asking some friends to join us along the way, and we'd like you to get involved too. In episode one, we each came up with a few questions to ask one another, as a bit of a get to know you. Oh, I need to wait. Well, my phone's done something weird. It's locked me out. <laughs> Try again in five seconds. Do you want to fire away first? Sure. Um, I'll go for number two. Number two? That would be... Oh, I like that one. What would you like to be doing when you're old? It's not necessarily a music question, but it could be. <laughs> well... I mean, me and my friends always used to joke about when you were old, would we, I don't know, when, when I was wee, older people would go to like the village hall and play bingo and that sort of thing. So we were wondering if we'd be sitting playing like Mario Kart on our N64s that we'd kept in the loft. So maybe, yeah, at the age of 75, I'd like to still be playing Mario Kart, I think. That sounds like a good way to spend your time. You know, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't necessarily have anything you have to be doing, which is what you want to be the case when you're old, really, isn't it? Yeah. I could right. just, as long as I've got my health family, that's all that matters. Well, well, we have to hope and assume, let's assume that you've got your health. Okay, well, let's go for number six. Number six was, if you had any guilty pleasures... Now, I was thinking this specifically in terms of music. It's not, you don't, obviously, I don't feel that any music's like guilty pleasures, but stuff that might be perceived as guilty pleasures. That's a really good question. Um, I think we're probably both in agreement that we don't really believe in guilty pleasures um, as an idea because, yeah, what the hell? You can like what you want. I, I totally think that. But, you know, push comes to shove, though. I mean, Something like um, possibly musicals. I'm, I've got a love-hate relationship with musicals. I, I don't. There aren't any musicals that I have that I have kind of neutral feelings about. I either hate them or I love them. Um, I know. I think something like uh, Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat, that sort of thing. Um, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, there's that twinge of guilt about liking. Andrew Lloyd Webber, but uh, but he has got some great yeah, tunes. I think you know. I'm <laughs> the right category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be one. There are others. There are more. Yeah, but that's the one that I can think of off the top of my head. I think Tim <laughs> Rice. Tim Rice is a really clever lyricist. I like the Lloyd Webber Tim Rice um, collaboration. He's just got such funny lyrics and, and witty and clever. I really like his lyrics. I find them kind of warm and humorous. Um, I'm maybe not such a fan of uh, things that Lloyd Webber's done with other people, but Tim Ray specifically. You know, I thought it's a good combination. I'm not even a particular fan of um, The Lion King with uh, Tim Rice and what's his name, Elton John. But I like Elton John and other things. 
it's just that combination that I, I, I think works really well. I mean, since we're talking about that, do you uh, do you have a guilty pleasure musically? I need to ask you that now. I, th- I guess things like Neil Sedaka, they fall oh, into yeah. that category. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. probably him more than anybody else, actually, I think. Mm. I've been listening to loads of Neil Sedaka lately. and Laughter in the rain. Uh, yeah, I don't feel guilty about that one. No. And then there's the early ones, the Calendar Girl and stuff like that. I I, I mean, I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about in the song. It's almost just like um, the image of Neil Sedaka that (laughs) might be seen as a guilty pleasure, but... I know. Just because he's so, like a doll almost, like... He kind of always... And he's quite, yeah, he's very cheesy. Yeah, he kind of always looked like somebody's dad, didn't he? Yeah. Like even when he was young. I, I spent the first two months of lockdown watching his daily concerts on his Facebook page. Oh, wow. And he was always, every day, he was like, hello, Neil Sedaka here. Yeah. With another concert. <laughs> was he a total pro in, in these lockdown concerts? Yeah. I was getting out the first week. He did it next to his like pet bird. And it kept walking across and jumping on his head while he was playing. <laughs> and he obviously got fed up because he moved, he sort of set it up for the second week onwards. I think he's still doing it now. Is he? Oh, I'm going to need you, He did a good one a couple of weeks ago where it was like songs that he wished he'd written. And he did um, Alone Again Naturally, the Gilbert O'Sullivan. All right. And okay. just as he was playing it, he kept going, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Just that he loved that song so much. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I'll tell you, talking about that, the one that I watched at lockdown a lot was um, Mike Bat. In fact, you could say that's a guilty pleasure because of all the Wombo stuff that he that he um, that he wrote. But I mean, I love all that. I love the Wombo stuff, and and he wrote some great like Caravan and um, Bright Eyes and. Just amazing songs like that as well. My favourite Christmas song was him. Yeah. You say Winter's Tale by uh, David Essex. Um, but he did a lockdown show and it was, he did it for a bit. He was promoting an album actually. Yeah, that could be a good I suppose the Wombo thing, but then it's all become really cool now that it's revealed that the Ramones loved it. So as soon as you find out that Ramones loved Exercise is Good for You, they used to do it um, at their rehearsals apparently. Suddenly the Wombos are totally, when you find that out. Maybe in another five or ten years they'll be selling Wombos t-shirts in pre-market and everyone will be wearing them. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> in fact, somebody's going to watch that and get the idea. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> you should. Oh, that's cool. I, I think probably if you keep thinking about it, I mean, even things like ABBA, would, when I was a teenager, would have been seen as guilty pleasures and now everyone loves them again. Absolutely. Like I, I always loved them, but you probably, I might not have admitted it when I was 15. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of admitted it, but not that much. There was a few things, like Wham, I would have totally cringed. I would never have admitted to liking it by Wham at the time when I was at school, because I was like about 13 or 14. But now I just think they're brilliant, yeah. you know? Aye, that's cool. We could probably talk about that for hours, couldn't we? That's a, you know, that's a good one. You know, that is a good one. That, that, that's. There's tons more mileage in that. I think we should come back to it. This week's guilty pleasure. Come up with a new one each time. I think so, definitely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think I have to give you the number now. I'll go for I'll go for number five. Okay. What is your favourite musical project that you are involved in, and why? There's a, a band. I say a band. It's two people that have been recording with me and my old friend Adam Ross, mm-hmm. and we're called the Polychromes. I think just I can't even remember when it was, but it was during lockdown at some point. I think yeah, we maybe both had in the back of our mind that we might do something sometime and this seemed a pretty good opportunity. So I think I messaged Adam, it must have been around May or June, and just yeah. said, just fancy just doing some back and forths? Because when I first met Adam um, at university, we, Adam's in Randolph's League, by the way, when we yeah. first met at university, it's kind of like how we did it because it was just the two of us. We thought, you can play drums, so you can play drums. None of us were really that great at guitar at the time mm-hmm. so we kind of if one of us could do it then we would do it so it just became a bit of a back and forth and it started off quite experimental with panning drums in weird ways and trying to make each other laugh and then eventually thought we better kind of mold them into songs mm. the theme of it was digital technology some of the just the terminology that you hear did you say the name of the band I did. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again, though. It's the polychromes. Yeah, because that, yeah, that, 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 that just wanted to kind of get that in there. Thanks. I'll put that on the screen, like in big capital. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and subliminally. Put a link to the band camp as well where we're at it. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of subliminal uh, sort of messages throughout this video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and then we'd sort of, I think we'd given each other titles for the songs for the other person to write lyrics. I think the first three had this theme of technology, mm-hmm. so we thought we'd kind of go with it. And it's been really enjoyable just even maybe recapturing some of that naivety that we had mm-hmm. back yeah. when we first started, because obviously a lot better at guitar and just being able to record as well, and just how to put a song together, really. Yeah, that was, that was good fun. I loved doing that. Really good. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely, what I've heard, I absolutely love. And it's brilliant and it's, uh, it's one of the, some of the strongest stuff that you and Adam have done, I think, you know, absolutely. And it's mm-hmm. great that you, you can, you get that feeling that it came about uh, as a sort of fun project, you know. And I love the whole sort of, uh, the way you've, you, you've made it about technology as the concept that it's kind of hanging around. There's one that you've got, you're doing a kind of robotic voice, a bit like Kraftwerk. <laughs> it's, it's really good. It's, it's kind of humorous, but um, I don't know. It's not too humorous. At, and it's great songs, great, well arranged. Love it. Thank you very much. Now we've got to check out the polychromes, right? Part of this, yeah. part of this podcast is we're going to probably talk <laughs> about our own music because that's what we know, yeah. isn't it? So uh, why the hell not? Thanks for... Uh... Thanks for repeating the name of the band three times. Finally, I forgot to do it. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing I didn't enjoy was trying to keep the saxophone in tune. Oh, really? Have you recently? Have you played saxophone long? Uh, no, since just this year. Again, in my naivety, I thought I'd be able to, six months and I'd have it mastered. It didn't quite work like that because you have to rely on like the way your mouth shaping is everything to tune it. I just thought it was a case like a, sort of like a recorder where you, it's a little bit easier to keep the tuning. 
All right, so you have to develop muscles to get the right sound and things like that, yeah? Uh, it's That's like mouth shape, so the deeper notes, you sort of have to drop your jaw, I guess, a little bit. Ah, I've still not got it mastered, though. It's like my uh, my high G is particularly troublesome. Well, that, that kind of naivety is a, is part of the charm, isn't it? I mean, I like that. I like the sound of people playing instruments that I have not fully mastered them, you know. There's something, that, there's another kind yeah. of energy that comes through, you know. I think it's that, that sort of stuff, you can overthink it as well, like trying to get things sounding perfect. Yeah, yeah. Out of tune things sound good on record, you know. I mean, I love, it's a Bob Dylan, Blonde on Blonde, there's hardly a note on it that's in tune, really. <laughs> and then that's, that's, it just sounds great, you know. <laughs> Am I allowed to throw that back at you then? Why not, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got a few bands to choose from, really. I'm currently... I've got Workspace, and uh, I've got Lindsay Moss, and that's really it. I'm not in any other bands right now, um, and and I'd have to say it was Workspace because that's my kind of new thing, and it started in lockdown as well, and it's much more electronic than anything I've ever done before, and that's just a lot of fun, and I'm quite I'm quite enjoying just that sort of a feeling of uh, being being kind of playing God sort of thing, you know, you can you can just arrange it all the way you want it. And I'm loving doing that, you know. It's good fun. It's it's quite self indulgent in some ways. It's not collaborative particularly. Uh I have got Alistair's played bass for me. There's a little bit of collaboration there. But as some of them I'm now playing bass as well myself. I, I'm I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying that because it's just been able to just that sort of lockdown thing has thrown up a lot of interesting things. Um, people are doing things that they would haven't find ways of making music, aren't they? So that's that's an example of it. it. Sounds like the same thing happened with the polychromes. Now the workspace stuff sounds amazing. It's like it's so clean. I like wow. the way that your your vocal as well is it's, it's quite understated. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like. I don't mean that in a, a bad way. I think it's, it sounds great. It just sort of sits in with everything else. Because I think a lot of electronic music can sound a bit aggressive. And yeah, well, nah, with, the, with the vocal thing, I, I mean, uh, as you know, because you played with me and Lindsay Moss, and well, still do when we ever do anything. But um, <laughs> the the I'm kind of going for the opposite with the vocals that the, from Lindsay Moss because felt that I was getting in the way. Uh, trying to be a singer uh, with that, and I know it's not that I'm never going to do that again, but I probably will. But it's just I wanted to be, I wanted to get me out of the way and not try and be, you know, Scott Walker or Elvis or somebody that I'm just can't, I'm not, and I can't do. I have to accept <laughs> that I will never be Scott Walker. You know that that's kind of what workspace is, and uh, not kind of get in the way. So that's yeah. what I'm trying to do there. Can I tell you something that I've always thought you're really good at as well? The lyric that is so, in a moment, like a personal thing that you've said or somebody said to you, mm-hmm. and you just put it in a song. I think, is there one about um, pounding the, in the ashtray for a ring? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I know, I know the story behind it, but it's... Um, I just think stuff like that sounds great. Like, it doesn't need to be too poignant or... No, I quite like that. that. Just, yeah. just, just something pops into my head. And then uh, sometimes it's just like a rhyme. If it will, how do you make this rhyme? 
and then that's what comes out, you know. <laughs> and then then sometimes there's a sort of backstory evolves around it, you know. I don't know if you do that. Do you kind of do you work with do you write lyrics that you think sound good before um, thinking what they mean or whatever? Sometimes I think my phone's just full of little sung melodies that I've kind of made words up to the time, and then there's a notepad of titles or a notepad of phrases that it just thought up. Some of them evolve as you go. But actually, a lot of the time, I kind of write the lyrics as I'm recording them. Yeah. I don't have it to go to the microphone with. It's sort of like you've maybe got a couple of lines that sound good and then a painful struggle to try and get the rest of the song out. No, I, I, I've been doing that a lot more recently, and I like that way of not, not writing lyrics first, sort of doing it at the very end. And just not thinking about it too much. I think that, that, that works better, I think. Certainly melodies come easier to me than lyrics, definitely. Yeah, me too. I've kind of accepted that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. that. It feels good when you get something you're happy with, though. Yeah, um, you've got to play to your strengths, you know. Um, what was the first question you asked me again about where I saw myself when I was... Yeah, and, re- and when you were old, when you are old in your retirement. Yeah, well, since we've been throwing the questions back at each other, what, where do you see yourself? Oh, yeah, because I never answered that one. Uh, I, well, I'd like to be doing a sort of like Bob Dylan on tour. You know that kind of endless tour thing that, he's, <laughs> that he does? I'd like to do that in my retirement. You know, retire from the day job and just go on the road. I don't know if I'd like it, though, but I, I, I've got in, in my head that would be a cool thing to do. I might just do it for like a month and then hate it and then never do it again. I'm only joining the band if you've got an N64. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do for like the second Lindsay Moss album. We'll just wait till we're uh, in our 70s. Well, that's, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> Thanks for um, teeing me up on that one. <laughs> cool. Well, do you want to have another question then? I'm going to pick a number. Okay, what's your what's your number one then? Number one is people who have left an impression on you. Um, yeah, yeah. I can think of a few um, people that I know and that you know as well. But I think one that I probably I probably like to talk about would be Kim Fowley. I don't know if you, if you ever um, if you, do you know who Kim Fowley is? Do you remember uh, maybe stories about him? Yeah, funnily enough, he was one of the people I thought might come up. Aye, aye, yeah. I mean, because he's such a, he was such a larger-than-life character. Uh, the Probably the most larger-than-life character I've, I've ever met. I got, you know, the chance to work with him. I was a fan of his music before I met him. And when I was with the BMX Bandits in the 1990s, Jason McPhail got us together with him, I think, because he brought... Um, Kim Fowley over to do a show in the 13th Note Cafe, the old one in Glassford Street, got us to be his backing band. And then what happened was we recorded an album with, and, and in the space of a few days and recorded a live session, radio session with him on Radio Scotland as well, all in the space of a few days. And the album, and he, and he also produced four tracks by the BMX Bandits as well as well as us collaborating on a new material with him, with him singing, 
we, we he produced four new tracks by the BMX Bandits as well. So all that stuff happened in about forty-eight hours. It was incredible. He was just like a ball of energy. I mean, he didn't. His his demeanor was actually quite laconic. You know, he was like, "Yes, he talked like that, that sort of thing." You know, and like, but he had such a, he had a kind of stone cold gaze, and he would just like he'd keep us up all night long. Um, writing songs, telling us what to do. He was like a really old school producer, uh, saying like, you're Roger McGuinn, you're Tom Petty, go into that room, go into that room, we're going to record this live with all the doors open, um, vocals included, um, and then write, go and write the lyrics to that song, come back in an hour, and it's like four o'clock in the morning, and we were forced to write uh, four new songs, <laughs> and then record them. <laughs> <laughs> It was crazy, but he was just like an absolute force of nature. If if you've if you've ever seen that in a real character and funny, and he's got a kind of warmth to him as well that he's almost kind of childlike underneath that kind of really dictatorial um, demeanor. If you watch the film uh, The Runaways, that there's an actor in there who portrays Kim Fowley, and it's all about his relationship with the Runaways and Joan Jett. He it's it's crazy. The actor that plays Kim Fowley is so like what the real guy is like. So if you want to get an idea of what I'm talking about, watch the film The Runaways. He actually executive produced it along with Joan Jett, so he, he had a lot of say, and, and he was kind of probably on the set quite a lot. So the actor probably felt, you know, that energy and was able to kind of put it back onto the camera. I, I Kim Fowley, yeah, that, that's got to be in a short space of time. And I would also say Douglas is a huge influence, but I've known him for a long time. So for somebody um, that I only met for a 48 hours, it'd have to be Kim Fowley, you know. And his music's incredible. I mean, this, the stuff he's been involved in, like, not rocker. I'll just play for you. <laughs> he he wrote that. that in 1962 <laughs> and then he went on to have sort of hits like The Trip and the Psychedelic Era and he produced people like Steppenwolf and all these other people, you know. Brilliant. But yeah, there you go. That's sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> I got a bit carried away with that one. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. So um why don't I just fire that one back to you? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Douglas as well, and certainly, I think he opened a lot of doors for us early on anyway, and he's always very encouraging of things that he's he's into. Yeah. King Baller gigs, let me play in his band as well, which was, yeah. uh, at that at the age I was at, I just, it seemed so far away for me at the time. We were playing gigs in places in Glasgow where sometimes you're playing the single figures. And I think the first gig I played with you, with DMX Bandits, there was maybe about what, a couple of thousand, maybe? Ooh, um, yeah, well, it w there was one in um, The Captain's Rest, I think. It was with Ashley, Ashley Little. Um, mm -hmm. I was in a muck in Snow Goose, and there was, a, there was an acoustic yeah. show. Was that the first one? Or was there? I don't know. If it, there certainly wasn't 2,000 people in The Captain's Rest. No, no, there wasn't. But, but, but maybe the <laughs> I mean, one after it, it, that. All of those things happened around, like in this, in about the same week or fortnight, where yeah. I can't remember how long after 
I met Douglas it was, but I remember we went, because he came to our uni, we were doing a sort of songwriting week at UWS, mm-hmm. and obviously he's good friends with Davy Scott, who was our lecturer, and we'd kind of been giving him the our CDs and things like that, and he liked the, the stuff, the, the kind of Randall Sleep stuff we were, um, that Adam had written. I, I honestly don't know the time frame, but I do remember that we had a rehearsal, which was the first time I met you. I can't remember if the gig with Ashley happened before we went to Spain. So it was in oh, RCL. Yeah, that's the, right. Yeah. Um, I remember walking about Barcelona with you talking about terrapins. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you, yeah, because I remember we were saying something about your, your song, She Plays Me Like a Theremin. Ah, and I think right. he said she plays me like a terrapin so much that you actually said it on stage without, or sang it on stage without even noticing you were doing it. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, no, Barcelona was a wee bit later, it was Murcia. Was ah, the, right, yeah, Murcia, yeah, that was great. Because it was a square, wasn't it? Yeah, from the gigs I was used to, to that, mm. it was like, wow, that's, that's amazing, like, yeah. you've got to do stuff like that. And then you realise you can you can do it, and it's yeah. Uh, that's an incredible. Um, I had a sim- I had a similar experience with the BMX Bandits when I first joined them um, in nineteen ninety two, and my first gig was a sold out show in King Tut's, which was the start of a, a UK tour, and it was the same as you. I'd never played to more than like a four or five people, you know, maybe like the odd thing in a town hall and when we were all at school or whatever and having a laugh, but it was just like, my God, this is crazy. We're standing up here and uh, suddenly <laughs> you're part of this thing where it's like people are really into this band mm-hmm. and, and you're up there on stage and, that, and you've been a fan of the band as well before. Cool. I, know, I know that feeling well. I think once you're doing it, it's just like any, I actually feel, always felt more calm eventually doing the bigger gigs than the weird gigs. Yeah. You just like a bit of space. You can't see you can't see the whites of their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody's shouting abuse, you can't hear them as well. Yeah, it's definitely easier doing these bigger ones. Yeah. See, when I think back to even that stage, I think um, probably Davy Scott had just the way his he plays the piano and this, the kind of chords he uses and things was a very big influence on on me. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. Certainly, I struggle to have on the piano. Everything has to be a major seven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) David likes his major sevens, but uh, as as we all do, I think, I think we're all in that school, aren't we? Everybody needs to know the difference between a a major and dominant because the amount of guitarist fingers I've had to go up and move their (laughs) finger up a fret. Oh, yeah, That's like one, of, one of my goals in life as a as a music tutor is to make sure every beginner pianist knows what that is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so I think we've got, we've got one more each. Let's go for number three. Okay, dokie. I've actually managed to not know the pen from my own phone. <laughs> okay. Um, have you ever written a political song? I don't think so. No, no. I can't. I can't. I can't remember doing that. If I've ever done it, then it, I can't think that it would have been the primary sort of starting point of the song. Hmm. There might have been a kind of lyric that only I know the meaning of is in there. Yeah. 
I may have put hidden messages and videos at times. Yeah, yeah. Very recent past, but um, that's for other people to figure out if they've ever seen it. Well, yeah. It's a notoriously hard thing to do. And that's, that's what, what something that Douglas has mentioned a few times as well. Like that Now, one he mentioned to me, which I think is a great example of a good political song, is um, uh, Streets of London, you know, Ralph McTell. Mm-hmm. Because it's making a, it's a me- there's a message there floating about, but it's but it's just a st- simple story about mm-hmm. a few characters. Can I? Is that really good? Mm-hmm. So it's not like overtly political, like in your face. Yeah, yeah it's not like maybe like some Billy Bragg songs. I, I love Billy Bragg, but some of his songs are a bit more overt, aren't they? Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, on the top of my head, I, I can't think of any. I might have tried to when I was when I was a bit younger, and it sounded terrible, probably. But. but I mean, you are quite you are somebody who is interested in politics and um, engaged in them as well. Sometimes, so I think I think in the past I've maybe put enough of political opinions up on Facebook that <laughs> you know, we need to <laughs> kind of reinforce it in uh, in music. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been trying to do, especially lately with music, is. Um, with kind of my own stuff, which I've been recording under the name The Smart Set, it's almost like, yeah, just Smart little set. imagined stories. Like, one of the, yeah, <laughs> it's, we're not even on the screen at the moment. It's just that, it's just the name. <laughs> Most of these songs have come from titles that I've written down that mean nothing. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to put a little bit of significance in them, but not torture myself on lyrics. So, I mean, yeah. I, I think if you're going to make a political statement in a song, you have to be really good at doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you hear the new Public Enemy song that came out, the State of the Union? Oh, um, I don't know if I've heard that actually, no. That's, it's really amazing. It's actually like, it could have come out with the sound and the, the impact of it in like 1988. It's just, mm. um, but it's all obviously kind of, about Trump and it was all during the kind of Black Lives Matters uh, protests that mm. happened over the summer. But it, there was stuff in the video, like footage in the video that had happened like three or four days before they released the song. Wow. It was so bang on. Yeah. And just the message in it and the lyrics are just fantastic. So oh, really? I think until I'm, until I'm, uh, I've got the lyrical aptitude of Chuck D, I'm, wow. I'm going to hold off on my political protest songs, I think. And was it written and sort of released in a very short space of time kind of thing? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. It definitely was heavily about Trump. So I guess, mm. I mean, he's not just turned into a racist over the summer. <laughs> he's been saying that stuff for a long time. So it could have been written at any time. Yeah, that's true. Um, or perceived as a racist. I don't know what we're allowed to say. He likes, he likes a bit of litigation, doesn't he? <laughs> if he's into Scottish he might he might uh, be after me next. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Um I've kind of attempted it. There was a song called it was a Lindsay Moss one, um called I Don't Believe in Anything. Introducing Lindsay Moss. Have <laughs> <laughs> we got any bands left to plug? Um, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's one or two, yeah, we can, we, we, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get them in. Um, 
I, I kind of, uh, that was an attempt, it was a conscious attempt to write something. And I, but the only way I f actually felt it was going to work was by writing a character, writing about a character. So I put the protagonist who's singing the song, I imagined a character, and it was kind of like set in the, the, um, the London riots, which had happened in 2011, so it was about that time. And I tried to kind of write something from somebody's point of view who is maybe decided they were wanted to throw a brick. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's the kind of, that was my only time I attempted it. I was all right, actually. But I've never tried again because, you know, that is really hard. I think, talk, funnily, talking about Billy Bragg, um, I mean, he's really famous for writing political songs. My favourite songs by him have always been his love songs, though. Um, since Wednesday, it's just a beautiful piece of poetry, you know, it's incredible. Yeah, that's one to check out. I listened to the, the Word in Your Ear podcast, which is brilliant, with Mark Ellen and David Hepworth. And um, they interview people who are writing books about music every other week. And uh, you don't have to read the book because you just listen to the author giving you a great synopsis of it. Uh, so Billy Bragg's written this one about Skiffle, uh, which is fascinating. It's just the origins of it and everything. He's really researched it really well. So our, our, our uh, combined political output is one song. That's pretty much it, yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's about, that's, that, that makes sense. That's about right. So I've, um, right. you've got so, one more. Yeah. What about number two? So maybe I could split this one in two. So I've got favourite and least favourite venues that you've played at. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, good question. Favourite and least favourite. Okay, well, small venues, my favourite place that I've ever played. Now, I, I played with Teenage Fan Club and well, a lot of venues um, in the late 90s. And there was a lot of small... We did quite a few small venues. It wasn't just all big shows. One of my favourite experiences in a smallish venue would have been playing with them in mono. With, with uh, when we did a a tribute to uh, Sid Barrett, because um, John Kavanagh had written a book about Sid Barrett, the, the Sid Barrett era, Pink Floyd. So we did songs from uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and uh, it was uh, Midnight Mike from the 1990s playing drums, uh, Mike McGochran, and that was a brilliant experience. Loved it, a great gig, just. Uh, that's one of my favourite small venue gigs I've ever ever played. Actually, it was really all very off the cuff. We le I learned the songs like that day and stuff. You know, one of these ones. That's my favourite. Um, least favourite. Oh, it's probably got to be something like Lindsay Moss when I'm being really nervous because I don't know the words to the songs. <laughs> and that, you know that uh, terrifying that fear. I don't know if you've ever had that where it's like you just like oh god I've got to go up in front of people and sing these songs. I can't even remember the words. I can barely remember the chords. I'm shitting myself. <laughs> the, the, maybe maybe one, of the, one of the Captain's Rest ones like that, probably. Yeah. I'll t well, I'll tell you, you weren't shitting yourself as much as me and Paul, who hadn't even heard the songs before. Oh, have we, have we done that <laughs> yet? I think there was one gig where we just looked at each other and were like, do we know this song? Uh, would, that, would that have been the, the old hairdressers, maybe? In my mind, it was a, a um, 
venue, I can't even remember the name of it, but it was like one of these sort of vegan restaurant turn uh, venues that was there for not too long. I think it might have been after the the premiere of the Serious Drugs film. Ah, oh. was that it? Was it not heaven? Not heavenly? Was it? Was it heavenly? Heavenly. Heavenly. Oh, was that somewhere else? That rings a bell. Hmm. So I might. But anyway, that was in it. That was that. Was that one of these ones where um, basically you, <laughs> we did songs that you didn't know? Can I? I think so. I think there was one surprised us with but aye but what about that but yeah for me it's got to be if it's a bad experience it's usually down the nerves and that's a horrible feeling horrible feeling i hate it you know aye. Aye. yourself can i just before i go on to me can i ask you do you get do you still get that feeling of nerves now um yeah i do but I, as long as i'm well rehearsed I, i'm all right you know i can just write it out no problem but if i if i haven't prepared well enough it's that's terrible <laughs> it's really really bad i was just thinking as you were saying that, that i remember i realized one day that i've sort of lost that right when you first start playing gigs your stomach's like, like you're so nervous mm. and then you sort of get used to it and it's just really exciting then I remember just playing gigs where I even felt slightly underprepared, but I was just really calm because maybe it was the kind of band that played with most of the time. Anything could happen at any point anyway, so it didn't really matter if you played a few duff notes or something. Was but it kind of like during a period where you've been playing a lot of gigs? Even recently, if I'm doing the odd gig here and there, I still don't really get it unless the focus is on me. There's a thing there where it's got the potential to go wrong, but it's actually more fun as a result of it. You get a better buzz off it. Um, I know so that can be great when it when it when you get up there and then like anything can happen and it and it, that can turn out really great. I did a, a solo gig a couple of years ago where I just decided I wasn't even going to rehearse the songs just so that there was the potential for it all to go horribly wrong, <laughs> just to give me that little bit of excitement. Yeah, yeah. And just the fact that it was a solo thing as well, which I'm not really done. Hard, I've hardly done any of them anyway, so there was that aspect. So. And did it work? Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. What, what gig was that? It was just, uh, I think it was just in Stirling at the Tollbooth. Mm. I did some smart set songs, just support slot kind of thing. I think I spent half the time just trying to tell jokes and stuff like that and just do stupid things just to make it a wee bit different, I think. Yeah. Uh, how's, how's your, how's your stand up comedy career um, shaping up then? I've just, it's just literally just started, so. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, because like the last gig uh, I think that I did as Lindsay Moss was when it was that solo thing. It was the uh, Seven Song Club that Warren McIntyre puts on, and I I did a Ken Dodd joke, and during my set, I think one person got it, and uh, <laughs> I, and, and and that one person didn't like it. <laughs> It was basically, I'll do the joke, right? Um, Ken Dodd comes on stage and uh, he goes, he does all his usual sort of introductory stuff and he goes like, how are you all tonight? Would you like a wine? And then the audience say, yes. And then he goes, uh, is that all right for you? He, he's a lot better at doing it than I was. I, 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 yeah, you know, brilliant. 
Well, <laughs> if only I'd I been there. <laughs> I love that, but I'm crappy doing it, you know. I'm not going to give up. <laughs> Maybe we could do a double act and that'll, that'll be us. Maybe that'll be my retirement plan. We could do it. That could be our retirement plan with the, the Super Mario game as well. <laughs> Let me take thing where you're gaming on Twitch and doing comedy at the same time. Yeah. Right, I'll try and answer the question then. Yeah. So definitely, I think I always used to love playing at the Captain's Rest mm. on Great Western Road in Glasgow. And it was there. There was just something about it. The sound was great in it. Like it was just a concrete cellar, basically. But it was... It was a great sound on stage as well. It, it was good to play, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really loved it there. It was really cool. And even the wee back room as well. Like yeah, that, that, so that dingy, dressing like, room. Yeah. <laughs> All the wee uh, barrels like, were just lining the side of the room. It was so dodgy, wasn't it? Like, you, you had to like walk through some crazy, like, you know, uh, really dangerous looking little corridor to get to. Yeah. But no, that was really great. It was really good in there. Mm. In terms of uh, worst experiences, actually, one of our worst gigs was in there. Actually, it was nothing to do with the venue, but I think that was the moment we realised actually we can't just get away with it and just do what we did at the last gig. You actually have to rehearse. And I think we had a moment of realisation on stage where we realised that it wasn't going well and we couldn't do anything about it and vowed always to rehearse before gigs. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the that's when it goes wrong, isn't it? Really, uh, it's when it's out of your control as well. Like, so yeah. you can you can mess up and it's fine because you can laugh it off and then sort of uh, get it back on track again. But yeah. uh, when it's just there's no vibe there at all, it's it's horrible. Yeah. It's a weird one when you're the support act as well. That can be quite strange. Nobody's there to see you, yet there is an audience there. Uh-huh. That's a weird, that's a kind of weird one, isn't it? I've not done it that often, but when I have, it's like, it's always that, can I forget that it's like, that's just really quite strange. Yeah, Yeah, I think I could do with reminding myself that they're not here to see me sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I demand all of your attention. Yeah. Well, that's it. You've got to go up and do that and try and win them over. That's the fun part of it. I I quite like doing that. You, You find yourself working harder. I've just thought of something else that's a sort of follow on from that last question, if that's allowed. Mm. Uh, which is things that have gone wrong on stage. I don't know. They've just something's happened, and it's uh, when it's, it's gone a bit shit. Yeah, I just thought of one that was. I think it was at stereo one time. I used to play this little Casio keyboard, mm-hmm. and I was quite fond of a little glissando up the up the keyboard just to get uh-huh. into the the chord or whatever. Oh yeah, who doesn't and love a glissando? Exactly. <laughs> in in and out of any part you're playing. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't tape it down, so it was hanging quite precariously anyway. And mm-hmm. then I did a very exuberant glissando that knocked it clean off the stand. That <laughs> uh, it, it was dangling by all the cables. But at the same time as doing that glissando and it falling, it accidentally hit the the drum button on. All right. Now they're all got these little drum machines. So like this crazy do 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 start well, came on. <laughs> It was set at the fastest setting as well. Full blast over the, the PA. I sort of just, everybody else got on with it. They just kept going and there was just this random drum beat in the background. Could you hear it amongst the music? Was it, was, was it really painfully obvious that that's what was happening? It was booming at 200 beats per minute. Oh, wow. 
and uh, they just kept going. Like, and nobody found it as funny as I did. Sounds got like it back up, realised the drum machine was on, switched it off, and just got on with the song, and it was never mentioned again until now. Oh. No, that's the that's, same. Um, you're working with professionals. That's what. That's what happened. You know? <laughs> that sounds like you couldn't. You know, you couldn't have planned that better for a for a kind of a slapstick comedy <laughs> moment. You know, like a, a Frank Spencer type thing. So some uh, gaffer tape was bought and the drum machine was put at the slowest setting every gig thereafter. What about you? Anything like that? No, I, c- I couldn't possibly match that. I can't think of anything. Major disasters, calamities like that. <laughs> nah, I can't. I mean, I honestly don't even know if I've pulled a guitar lead out or anything. I mean, <laughs> hey, yeah. Oh, well. You are the professional. Maybe that's it. Ultimate professional. It. Yeah. You ever sworn on live radio or anything like that? Oh, I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said shit on Radio 1. And it was at tea time, and it was BMX Bandits. And uh, I'd, I'd fluffed the intro, and I went, shit. And yeah. was, There's not a lot you can do after that, is there? It's yeah. Done. yeah, live radio. <laughs> Broadcasting to the nation. <laughs> All those little children's minds that you corrupted that day by saying I shit on Radio 1. I know, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been really nice to meet you, Finlay. Yeah, I know. I've been great to meet you, Gareth. I've uh, really enjoyed that. It's, it's fascinating hearing all your stories. I had no idea. Yeah, Clearly, yeah, I've never, never met you before. I know. It feels yeah. like I've known you for about 10 years. I know. I know. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yes, indeed. I've enjoyed it very much. Shall we do it again in a couple of weeks' time? Let's do it. Well, how do we do this? <laughs> Bye, everyone. Goodbye from him and goodbye from me. <laughs> I'm going to stop recording here. <laughs> <laughs>